0: Welcome back to the Management Lab. I'm Sean Hansen from Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology.
1: And I'm Ori Gall from the University of Sydney Business School in Sydney, Australia. Hello, Sean.
0: Hello, Uri. How are you doing?
1: I am doing okay, I guess, given the tumultuous times we're living in. How are you?
0: I mean, I I think we have said before that you are a native Israeli, and so I'm sure it has been a very difficult couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, Yeah. look, for um, everybody who's listening, Um, Sean and I, before we start recording, uh, we got together... and had had uh, a robust conversation. Is that a fair characterization? I think and, robust is a good word. Yeah. Yes. Um, about what's happening, and um, and uh, I think we both agreed. And I'm I'm gonna talk about this at a fairly high level level of abstraction, so as not to get bogged down with details. That moments like this are are moments that call for moral clarity. Yeah. And I think it's a it's an opportunity for many people that hold various positions in society to um to be courageous and 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 demonstrate moral clarity, which is something we've talked about before in the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. As a leader, an organizational leader, a political leader, as someone who aspires for other people to follow them and um, and do the right thing when when the moment calls for it, I think this is a. This is a moment—a moment for moral clarity—and I've—I've been disappointed in in the actions that many people have taken so far, and what I think is their failure to demonstrate such clarity.
0: Yep, I agree. I agree. I think we need courageous leadership.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which is something that um, we always need, and um, I feel like in many cases, especially especially in the last few weeks, um, we've been in, in in short supply of, which is unfortunate. For sure and um other than, that, <laughs> other than that
0: other than the world falling around falling down around us yeah
1: yeah yeah no we were talking about um um the younger generation as well in the west specifically and um how we feel that many of them anyway based on some of the stories we've heard in the last few days are morally confused and uh, not to draw an equivalence by any stretch of the imagination but I. <laughs> my my six-year-old got a um she had her, her birthday um not too long ago a few weeks ago and she got uh, a present from her aunt in Germany so we just not we just got it now uh, a couple of days ago which is like a, a digital camera for kids and she's been playing around with this and for the life of me I don't know where she got this from she must have seen this somewhere but do you know what was the first thing that she did when she got it uh, she
0: took a selfie.
1: Yes, she took a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> she bloody took a selfie, and I'm thinking, how do you even have the like the the knowledge to know what a selfie is? I didn't know what a selfie was when I was 16, but that was her first instinct to take a selfie. Yeah, that's wow. That's 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 quite telling. Yeah,
0: I'm not disparaging your daughter here, but uh, but it said does say something about an entire generation if your first intuition when you're given the ability to capture something about reality is to take a picture of yourself. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to uproot that, um, that intuition.
0: Yeah, that's good. Get out <laughs> of it.
1: <laughs> that's my mission for the next 10 years.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, the issue about the ethical reasoning. So, um, I just, in my intro to information system class that I teach, um, I love my students. If any of them listen, uh, you guys are great, but I was a little disturbed. We did ethics last week, uh, ethics and information systems. And I was a little disturbed in terms of um, some of the, you know, asking them to sort of work through uh, ethical dilemmas. Um, there was a lot of non answers, you know, and I don't know if that is a question of people not wanting to necessarily put themselves forward on topics that, that, you know, that there can be a difference of opinions on and, Um, but it really, it made me uncomfortable. And there was, there was also a certain hand-washing, right? Like when we talked through a dilemma about a manager dealing with a moral dilemma dealing, surrounding the development and implementation of a information system. And the answer was sort of very much CYA, uh, cover your ass type solutions, right? Like, well, get someone to sign off on it. So they'll get the blame if it goes wrong kind of thing. And again, this was not universal, but there was a lot of that and it. Um, it worries me. It worries me a little bit because uh, every time, every time there is a, uh, well, we've talked about this in past episodes, but every time there is sort of a, uh, a failing in the marketplace, you know, a a controversial issue that disrupts our markets, like in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis and the, the, the bad behavior by the banks or earlier on the, the, you know, the, the financial crisis that was uh, brought on by, the bad behavior at Enron, you know, unethical behavior at Enron. Every time those things happen as a society, we say, well, you know, these business leaders need to be educated in ethics. I agree. I agree. But 18 is, is a hell of a time to start, you know, Uh, if we want them to have the ability to, to work through uh, ethical dilemmas in a reasoned way.
1: Um, What was the dilemma exactly? In, in, in what sense the, their response um, disappoint you. So
0: there were a couple of different dilemmas. If you recall, the uh, AI, so an association that both Uri and I are a member of, It's called the Association for Information Systems. It's the the leading uh, academic uh, organization in in the information systems field. And several years ago, they did a guidebook of uh, ethical guidelines, and they included some scenarios. And one of those was a you know a man a, a consulting firm that's designing and implementing an information system for a firm. And it comes to the design of the uh, security guidelines. And in this scenario, the customer basically wants to shortchange the security, wants to go with cheapest options on security because, you know, they don't want the project to run high and, 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 the, the CYA type activity is, well, the right action for the manager of this firm is just to make them sign off on it so that they get the blame if things go wrong. Yeah. And I tried to point out that they're not the only stakeholders, right? The, that in this ethical dilemma, the, the employees of that organization are stakeholders because it's their information that would become vulnerable. The employees of the implementing firm are stakeholders because they could go out of business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of different stakeholders involved. And to simply say, well, you know, you're the manager, get somebody to sign a sheet of
1: paper strikes me as a
0: uh, ethically untenable solution
1: or a problematic solution. So did you um, confront the students with, with this response?
0: A little bit. I mean, I... I, I in that well, How, how did they
1: justify their choice? What was their rationalization? Well, that was part
0: of my concern is that there wasn't a lot of rationalization. It was, it's, you know, sort of get them to sign the paper and then it's their problem kind of thing. And so on that particular stance, there wasn't a lot of ethical, there was no ethical reasoning as to why that's the right action other than that it protects you as an individual, which is not a reflection of ethical reasoning. Right. Um, and so, uh, so that was, that was part of my, uh, discomfiture.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I think the, uh, issue of ethical reasoning has some bearing on the topic that we're going to talk about today. And today we'll talk about spirituality and how spirituality it plays out in, in
0: the workplace.
1: Yeah. How it plays out in organizations.
0: Which Uri proposed this and it's it's quite interesting. I did. See. I did. So for those of you who
1: don't <laughs> know, um, Sh- Sh- Sean, would you describe yourself as a spiritual person?
0: Uh, yes. Yes, for sure.
1: Okay. And, and I, I am,
0: I am actually a religious believer is this is, is this we're going to be revealing too much here <laughs>
1: it's too late now
0: and uri, uri is not a religious believer now one of the things we're going to note is that workplace spirituality is not about not fundamentally about religion at all and actually it's very explicitly avoided in the religious framing within the literature and i think that's important because i, I think it, it muddies the water to talk about this phenomenon as in religious terms but nevertheless I was surprised when Uri proposed this topic as opposed to uh me proposing the topic. I was just trying to make you happy. <laughs> I appreciate that.
1: But so okay, when you say you're a spiritual person, would you divorce that from your religious beliefs?
0: Uh yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, just uh, maybe I'm revealing too much about myself, but I'm a big uh fan of comparative religious studies like I I find uh, I find it fascinating to look at different religious Perspectives. I have my own tradition and my own uh, belief system, um, but I see a lot of value in in those of other people, and uh, and I find them, I find it really engaging uh, to sort of grapple with that. And so, yeah, absolutely. I, and I think the framing of spirituality that we see here, which we'll delve into in a second, I think is really uh, helpful because it, it it is again not grounded in religious principles. Right. Some would argue maybe fundamentally it is, but it is in in this literature not so much grounded in religious principles as personal values uh needs beyond the physical go ahead sorry
1: (laughs) can i can i push back for a second so i want to i want to ask you another question and see if you can lead us into the some of the research that we read in preparation for today what does it mean for you to be spiritual in what way does your spirituality find expression in your day-to-day life
0: um so, uh, I mean, so I'm not one of those people in my own day to day life who who does that. I'm does that line. I'm I'm spiritual but not religious thing, right? Uh, and that's very common where people say I'm spiritual but not religious. So that might be a better question to pose to them, because I do see it as being, you know, ingrained within my entire uh, conception of of human values and. Uh, and respect for individuals and, you know, all all the things that <laughs> make life worth living, right? Like, how do we get along with one another and, and, and pursue the good life? Um, but for me, that does have a lot of connection with my own tradition. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so
0: uh, it might be a better question posed
1: to someone who Okay, so goes with you, that other you, line? you're dodging the question. I respect that. I'm not going to push back anymore. <laughs>
0: <So> <laughs> I don't think I am, but do you consider hey, here's a better question since I will turn. Do you consider yourself a spiritual person?
1: My knee jerk reaction is to say no, but I think we need to be clear on what we mean by a spiritual to better understand my answer. Yeah, just so. And um, so, <laughs> i <I'm, laughs> I'm gonna be as um as avoidant as you as you were and I'm I'm gonna more so let's, much more so as far as I can tell. Let's circle back to this because I want I wanna I wanna pull our listeners back in uh and I wanna offer some kind of um a a, gu- a guideline to the conversation that hopefully people will be able to to track as we go along. So uh, sure I think what we wanna start with is is um clarify what we actually mean when we talk about spirituality in the workplace. So we'll talk about yeah. individual spirituality and organization of spirituality and how it relates to other adjacent um concepts like mindfulness, for instance, which um many think is a um you know one one form or expression of, of spirituality. Um so we'll do that then we'll talk well, about I think the it's impacts. pretty
0: squarely yeah I think that's pretty squarely embedded within this uh, or this discourse on workplace spirituality. I would agree I think it is worth noting that, that in the distinction between individual
1: Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm just giving a, a broad overview of the conversation. Yeah, so am I. But go ahead. <laughs> we'll talk about what it is, then we'll talk about the impacts of spirituality on different facets of of organizational dynamics. And then we'll try to um tie this back with other types of um or other concepts and topics um that are related to organizational dynamics as well, like ethics and um how we um interact with different types of employees and organizations and see where this takes us are you happy with this you should be happy with the outline since you you wrote it down my
0: spirit is happy (laughs) with that approach great
1: great so individual spirituality
0: yeah so uh, what i was going to note earlier before you cut me off uh was that it seems that this distinction between individual spirituality and organizational spirituality are are the two key uh sort of cam- are framings that you're seeing within this research literature um and I will say when I heard organizational spirituality my first reaction was what does that well like what does that even mean right mm-hmm. because it seems to me that spirituality is 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 very much about the experience of an individual or groups but uh, very much a Uh, An individual experience. And so the individual framing we can start there is, uh, is, again, not a religious principle. It is this conception that individuals, people within organizations have a need for meaning within their uh, lives, including in the workplace purpose to feel like their work has purpose, Mm -hmm. uh, to feel they have a need for connectedness between individuals, um, a sense of virtue, a sense of hope uh these things that i think would broadly be characterized as spiritual principles Mm
1: -hmm. yeah so it's some sort of a a a consistent exploration with the inner workings of your um self i suppose that go beyond the mere material aspects of your engagement with uh, your work in, in the context of organizations right so it goes beyond just um being entirely focused on extrinsic elements in your environment, like what it is that I do, what, what does my work consist of? What am I getting in, in return for performing my work? Um it goes beyond a utilitarian conception of my relationships with other people. And really t- I think it's you know like an attempt to attend um to the inner meaning of these interactions these things they do what do they do for me as an individual how do they help me grow and find meaning and purpose in life and connect with other people as well
0: yeah so i'm going to quickly pause and now say this within that framing i would say surely you would say
1: you are a spiritual person
0: right if we if we adopt that framing
1: to a degree um because i think to you know like everything else there's it's not a binary distinction between being spiritual and not being spiritual I think there are degrees of gradations and to me to be seriously spiritual uh, but you
0: you well let me let me finish I shouldn't cut you
1: off I shouldn't cut you off you shouldn't cut me off (laughs) I think it requires real dedication right I think it's uh, it it's a practice Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I I wouldn't call myself a practitioner of spirituality
0: so i don't know if it's strictly a practice Uh, i mean again if we say if we think of individual spirituality as people who express so for example people high in individual spirituality within this literature within this research would express a high need for meaning and purpose in their work for connectedness with others for nurturance for hope right and i think you certainly strike me as a person who who I'm not saying you're needy, so don't misinterpret this, but you need connectedness. You enjoy connectedness with others. You enjoy, you have, you know, you're a good friend. And that means I think people who are good friends are people who know how to, the give and take of a relationship and uh, and and the, uh, building a relationship beyond, you know, transactional interact you know, beyond yeah. mere interactions is part of that. Um, and, you know, as a researcher, I think most of us have a sense of, wanting purpose and meaning in the work that we do and the questions that we ask?
1: Yeah, so um, um, tr- yes, I don't disagree with that, but I, I, I still think that it's a matter of degree. And um, I really like, um, and we briefly talked about this before we started, uh, um, Sam Harris's view of spirituality, which I guess is a on, on, on the range of views on spirituality, I guess his view is more of a scientific kind of what it means to be spiritual. But the way he describes it is is like a persistent, deliberate practice of self exploration, mm-hmm. and in, in order to understand the nature of your own subjective experiences and consciousness, and yeah, I, yeah. Uh, and I, specifically
0: know, to move toward a rejection of the principle of an I, right of the ego of the self.
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of the outcome of this process to understand that the ego is just an illusion according to you know based on this view now if
0: it it seems that he does not express adherence explicit adherence to buddhist philosophy but he seems so buddhist to me right in his in his philosophy i mean certainly in his practice he my understanding is he now has a one of the most popular meditation platforms available online right he has a service, uh, a daily, you know, online meditation service that my understanding is it's hugely popular. Mm. Um, And I think he, I think a lot of that practice builds on Buddhist practice, uh, meditation practice, and certainly, uh, you know, the rejection of the, of the self and the ego is certainly core to, to Buddhist philosophy.
1: Yeah. So, you know, based on that definition, I would not describe myself as a spiritual person. I would like Mm -hmm. to become more, um, and, Honestly, in reading for today, um, especially the stuff on mindfulness, which we'll touch on in a few minutes, there's so many obvious, tangible, real, substantial benefits to being mm-hmm. a, a practitioner that it really made me think like I should get into this more seriously.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I, I do do some meditation and I find it very efficacious.
1: Um, so, okay, so know, we talked about individual. So that's the individual. Yeah. So how do we extrapolate from the individual to the organization?
0: Yeah. So uh, my understanding, again, based on this research is that organizational spirituality then, which does seem like a slightly strange framing to me, but is the degree to which an organizational environment um, recognizes and explicitly acknowledges values like uh, personal growth and development, like nurturance, like support for individuals, uh serving and sharing uh embraces the the uh concept of meaning within work and tries to reinforce the idea that that organizational environment um believes in in the meaningfulness of what is done there
1: yeah so one of the uh, papers that we looked at um defined organizational workplace spirituality as an individual's perception of the spiritual values within the organizational setting and a couple of the ways that they measured it is by asking people to um, note the degree to which they agree with the statements like, in this organization, there's a sense of the sacredness of life. We are urged to set aside time for personal reflection and growth in this organization. Some mm-hmm. statements like this, so the degree to which people agree with them is indicative of the degree of organizational spirituality that, exist, that exists within a given setting.
0: Yeah. Which kind of makes sense all, to me. All this literature is that the 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 measures, right, in, in social science, well, in any science, right, the way you measure something, the way you operationalize something is key. And it does seem to me that across this literature, the measures are perceptual, meaning we're asking individuals to say, what's the degree of spiritual meaning or purpose that they see in their own organizations
1: right and are you saying this as a point of criticism
0: no no it just it seems like it's it's very consistent in terms of the measures and it's all it has to be measured at an individual level i mean i could imagine other measures right you could imagine other measures like the degree to which an organization uh prominence of messaging around values within an organization's uh you know uh strategic documents uh policy statements, uh, articulation of core values, that
1: sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, we've seen, um, um, subjective measures of different types of phenomena, um, like, you know, even financial performance, um, Mm -hmm. or productivity or stuff like that, which one would think would be more accurately measured through objective measures, like various financial indicators. But it strikes me then that in the case of a phenomenon like spirituality, which is a fundamentally subjective phenomenon, um, these sort of perceptual measures are actually warranted.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I would actually be much more critical of perceptual m- measures for those other things like organizational performance. If we say, How do you you know, how well do you think this organization works? And everyone says it's the greatest organization on <laughs> earth, but it doesn't make money, and it's like operationally dysfunctional then that's not really a good measure whereas for this one i agree it's it does seem more appropriate but it 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 strikes me that that's not the only way one could measure those things could measure organizational spirituality as as it's being defined here
1: yeah and um like we said one of the perhaps most prominent in the west anyway um expressions of spirituality, not just in organizations beyond in the last few decades um, has been um, mindfulness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And um, which is like a very close cousin of spirituality, or maybe a, a slightly um, like a tangible instantiation of, of, spirituality. And obviously many people practice mindfulness and read books about mindfulness and meditate. Um, and interestingly, there's actually some really good research that demonstrates very real relationships between mindfulness and a range of, um, physical, physiological, psychological, and behavioral impacts in ways that can have very beneficial consequences for organizations. So, uh, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll touch on those next, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And actually I think it's worth noting that even mindfulness, the one question is how do you define that, right? Like if we're, if we're going to be good about this treatment, we might want to think about how we sort of define our terms. Um, and again, mindfulness it's a little tricky because it does have a long track record or history within uh buddhist philosophy and and buddhist framing um but i think here uh, in mindfulness do you think it's fair to use a definition like uh clear-minded this is one from one of the papers we looked at is by uh is darren not the first author on this he was the first good good at all so this is uh, uh i referred to him by his first name because Darren Good is the first author on the paper, and he was actually a doctoral student at Case Western Reserve University at the same time that Uri and I were doctoral students there in a different program. Um, So this is Good et al. in um, the Journal of Management, 2015, and the article is called Contemplating Mindfulness at Work, an Integrative Review, and it is a review article, uh, meaning it it seeks to integrate uh, lots of research on mindfulness in the workplace. And I think their definition was uh, clear-minded attention to an awareness of what is perceived in the present. Oh, maybe, sorry, maybe that's the bad definition. You have a better one here.
1: So they they say a few things about mindfulness. So clear-minded attention to an awareness of what is perceived in the present, an apprehension of the current state of the mind that monitors Mm -hmm. that focused attentiveness. Um, and receptive attention to and awareness of present events and experiences. So I I think it's you know basically a very careful, careful and deliberate attention to what's happening around you and constant monitoring. And within you. Yes, and within including your own emotional states, yeah. And constant monitoring of your reactions to what's happening around you. So it's this hyper awareness to how you respond to your to your surroundings.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in that particular paper, I thought one of the really interesting things is they they noted that mindfulness can be conceived of in a couple of different ways as a trait of individuals, as a state of mind of individuals, as a practice, as you noted, that mindfulness is actually something that can be engendered and practiced in various ways. And then lastly, as an intervention where apparently quite a few organizations, I was interested to find that uh, Google, they note, Organizations such as Google, Aetna, Mayo Clinic and the US Army use mindfulness training to improve workplace functioning. So they actually train their members of the organizations uh, in mindfulness and mindfulness practice. So in that case, it
1: would be an intervention where you're trying to engender that. Now, when they talk about trait mindfulness, what, what does that mean exactly?
0: With respect to trait measures, they they just note that there are self-report measures that include trait measures. There's something referenced here as the five-factor mindfulness questionnaire, the mindfulness, mindful attention awareness scale. Um I have not, I must admit, I have not gone and delved into those
1: instruments. So
0: I don't know exactly what the items are on those instruments. Yeah. So um, they
1: they consist of observing the ability to observe present moment experiences describing the ability to describe these experiences acting with awareness non-judging the ability to be non-judgmental in uh, of present moment experiences and non-reactivity the ability to be non-reactive to present moment experiences these are the five facets
0: okay got it and then practices would be something more like Actual activities like reflecting, you know, centering on one's breathing, um, explicitly trying to take a moment to focus on activities and and concentrate on the activity one is doing in the moment. So just directed focus on on the present and and enacting uh, whatever your work is within the present moment.
1: And just to be clear, whenever we talk about mindfulness, and and correct me if your reading was different to mine. This is an individual-level construct, right? This is something that individuals can have to various degrees or varying degrees. Right,
0: right. Uh, So it is more like that individual spirituality. I think it would be a a valid subset of the individual spirituality where they don't talk about mindfulness of organizations. However, there is quite a bit of research on organizations promoting mindful practices or, again, uh, implementing interventions like training to enhance mindfulness.
1: Right. Do we want to talk about some of the consequences of of mindfulness? Not- I think
0: we should talk about the consequences of of all of it. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, the, the big takeaway is it seems like there's a lot of benefits that flow from from all of these constructs. We could certainly start with the mindfulness.
1: Right. So the review um, paper you mentioned before by Darren and his buddies, um, they list a. Uh, uh, they outline a long list of benefits along different types of categories that stem from mindfulness. So they talk about the impact of mindfulness on attention, that it it reduces mind wandering, right? You know, Mm -hmm. when you keep thinking about different things and you can't focus on a single thing. So mindfulness helps with that. Um, it helps improve attentional control, right? Reducing attention to um distracting information, like the pop-up message I just got on my screen from on my email that completely cut off my, <laughs> my train of thought.
0: It's gonna ruin our podcast.
1: <laughs> I'm bouncing back. I'm bouncing back. I trust you. Um, attentional efficiency, so we're better able to focus on what's important and kind of um, ignore what is a distraction at the present moment. Um, it also improves various cognitive capacities, right? So it, it improves our, um, working memory capacity. It increases cognitive flexibility, right? The ability to generate novel perspectives and responses, thereby leading to creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, it also has a relationship with various emotional facets. Uh, it, it shortens the emotional life cycle right so it speeds up recovery from negative emotions after they're experienced um, both after a mood induction and public speaking Uh, it reduces emotional reactivity Um, so it lessens threat related neural activation among mindful individuals Um, for instance after viewing faces expressing negative emotions right so it reduces the reactivity and it also generally um, arouses. Wait, or... how do
0: we, Wait, let's stop on that one. How do we understand that neural reactivity? So the idea is that when you're in, when you encounter some stress-inducing or emotionally intense uh, stimuli, you're more capable of integrating it in a stable way and and sort of responding uh, in a in a reasonable way rather than an emotionally challenging or problematic way.
1: Yes. Or to put it colloquially, you don't freak out when you see bad yeah, stuff. Yeah, you
0: don't freak out. That's that's the better summary
1: than mine. <laughs> <laughs> There's also... Um, and by the way, everything that I'm saying now, that all, all, all this list is all research-backed, right? So because this is a review article... Each individual piece of information here is basically uh, goes back to a different study that was conducted, an empirical study. So everything is research-based here, which is
0: multiple studies. In most yeah. of these cases, they're not even they're citing several different studies that basically reinforce those positive effects.
1: Yeah, um, there's also, they also that's... talk about
0: a lot of relational positive relational effects in terms of team coordination, uh, you know, improved conflict management. So when there's conflicts within groups. Uh, that conflict is, is uh, management of that conflict is improved. Um, you know, other orientation is improved so you can be more sensitive to the needs of others within a group setting. Uh, it can engender better shared mental models so that members of a team can sort of get to agreement and common vision around their work more effectively. Yeah. Uh, it, it
1: also promotes greater empathy and compassion to other people. Um, Yeah. And as, as a leader, um, it pays off to increase your ability to exercise mindfulness as well, because there are studies that, that show that leaders' trait mindfulness is positively associated with their employees' work-life balance, uh, with job satisfaction, with citizenship behavior, and job performance as well. And it's negatively related to employee exhaustion and deviance. Right. Yeah, these are employees which, which of leaders doesn't. with high levels of, of trade mindfulness.
0: Right, right. And I think actually this is why a lot of these things, a lot of these effects that they're noting for mindfulness relate to this broad, these broader principles of individual and organizational spirituality, because you're seeing similar things there. We don't have to jump to that just yet, but similar things there where, uh, you know, the the uh, people's satisfaction within their work environment, their commitment to the organization, things like that, are are greatly reinforced.
1: Yeah, but this particular study is interesting in the sense that you don't you don't even have to be mindful yourself. Just having a mindful leader can have all these, um, you know, cascading positive impacts on other people, which I thought was very mm-hmm. interesting.
0: Yeah, well, and I think that gets back to this idea like enhancing other orientation. I think one of the clear implications is that for leaders to be cognizant of their own emotional reactions to things, their own experiences in the moment helps them to recognize the needs of others. Yeah, Right. If you're leading a team and the ability to, to sort of contemplate and reflect on what's happening within the team, whether it's interpersonal dynamics, the needs of an individual, um, the, you know, the, the communication or lack thereof within the team, uh, you're in a better position to really manage those in a very conscious way if you're mm-hmm. if you're adopting this reflective practice.
1: Yeah. Another thing to point out is we, we talked about emotional regulation, how being mindful can help one improve their um, their emotional regulation in terms of dealing with negative or stressful experiences. And in an organizational context, Studies have shown that this greatly contributes to the idea of of, to the construct the concept of resilience, Mm -hmm. which many people have talked about a lot in the last few years. Right, this this capacity to, as an individual, and of course you could extrapolate from this to an organization as well. But as an individual, it's your it's your capacity to deal with stressful stressful, difficult testing situations. And in an era where Where everyone talks about you know digital disruption and how organizations have to change quickly um, and radically oftentimes the the capacity to show resilience is extremely important and if mindfulness can be um you know a boost in that perspective that's that's super important
0: yeah and on a related uh, or on a related Related. front both leadership mindfulness and leadership but also mindfulness in individuals Is also tied to this sort of climate of safety. And I think this gets back to that, definitely takes us back to that organizational spirituality construct, where it's creating sort of a a climate where people feel safe in expressing their perspectives, their own voice. Um, They're able to, you know, separate themselves a little bit from whatever's happening so they don't feel like any given uh, event within the organization has to be a threat to their own identity or something of that nature. And so their willingness to sort of, trust others and uh and express their own voice um and feel safe within their work environment is reinforced by these practices
1: yeah this kind of takes me to the start of the conversation and perhaps part of the conversation that we had before we hit the record button on um, the the fragility of our younger generations today and um, their need for safety but it seems to me that their need for safety at least the way it's expressed publicly is is mostly um oriented towards an outside locus so they expect other people to um moderate or monitor their behavior to make themselves feel safe rather than find the tools and the um the capacity to feel safe from within themselves so i think interesting if mindfulness can help in that way again that's another very positive effect that it has yeah, I do think
0: safety, on that front, we we might need to disentangle some of the ways in which it's used in the contemporary moment, because I think there is a real rhetorical element to the way people talk about safety. I think a lot of times it's used as a rhetorical tool to sort of debate or argue with others. Uh, and I, I don't know that that rhetorical use of the principle of safety is the same as, you know, well, like you said, engendering a sense of confidence in oneself and one's own perspectives and feeling um empowered maybe we would say within an organizational environment. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So I think there's there's very broad overwhelming support for the notion that mindfulness has various beneficial outcomes in organizations. Oh, by the way, one thing that we didn't mention which is related to the other stuff we're talking about, but to be explicit about this, there's also studies that demonstrate a positive relationship between mindfulness and various forms of organizational performance or or employee performance.
0: So actually let's let's use that as a lever to talk about this broader concept of individual or organizational spirituality and organizational performance. Cause I think that all flows in together. A lot of those outcomes seem consistent with
1: me. Okay. But do you want to go through these real quick and then tie um, sure. these yeah. to general spiritual so okay. So trained trait mindfulness was in one study was associated with child performance among restaurant servers and supervisors. Middle managers receiving mindfulness training, so that's the other dimension of mindfulness, exhibited large improvements in supervisor-rated job performance in a different study. And a third study found higher trait mindfulness amongst clinicians. It found that to be associated with more favorable patient ratings of communication quality and overall satisfaction. So again, there's a a range of, of tangible positive um, effects of of high levels of mindfulness
0: yeah and and i i have a little interesting illustration of that that just happened today i was at so particularly with respect to the restaurant one i was at a tim hortons for those of you not from the northeast of u.s the tim hortons tim hortons is a coffee shop so think dunkin Donuts, starbucks your you choose the coffee shop of your preference and I placed an order and the and it had one of those screens where I can see the the customer can see the order as it's being inputted by the the staff member. And um, and it was very clear that it was going in inaccurately, at least <laughs> from my perspective. And so I said, oh, that says triple, triple. And usually at Tim Horton's, triple triple means three co- three cream, three co- sugar. but I wanted Splenda. And so I'm like, ah, oh, that says triple-triple. I think it's wrong. And the lady got really defensive. And I'm I'm just trying to make sure I get the right coffee, right? And then I'm watching her make the coffee. And she clearly picks up a medium cup. And I ordered a large coffee. And so I said, um, that one's not mine, right? And she's like, no, this is yours. And I'm like, I ordered a large coffee. And I was trying to be as non-confrontational as possible. And she was so clearly getting annoyed, right? She was like upset with me. And from my perspective, it's like, I just want to make sure I get the right coffee. And it, it, I think that's one of those where maybe a little mindfulness might have helped, right? Number one, I probably would have gotten the right size coffee in the first place. But number two, she could disconnect me uh, asking these questions from an attack on her as an individual. You know, mm-hmm. Maybe it's a bad illustration, but that's the first thing <laughs> I thought of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but th- that is, yeah, I think there's there's certain when I see the, the restaurant example was really clear to me because I've often had people where I thought the service was just so bad. And I was, as a customer, I was trying to be nice, but like, it's like, good Lord. Like, um, I don't think any of the things I've asked for is unreasonable. And you're treating me like, like I'm
1: Attila the Hun. <laughs> well, in her, de- I wasn't there obviously, but in her defense, yeah. um, you have an imposing presence and people sometimes uh, perceive you as a, they don't know you for you know to, to be the the cuddly bear that I know you to be. They just see yeah, a, that's right. a huge that's right. um, redhead person that that's right. has yes. a, a long shadow. Okay,
0: so yeah, lots of lots of significant organizational impacts on in, on organizational performance that come from this. From and again, I think that was what? Sorry,
1: from mindfulness. From mindfulness, yeah.
0: But I think that's also again consistent with these broader concepts of. Uh, organizational spirituality and individual spirituality. In reading through this literature, it seems that both personal spirituality and organizational spirituality—these measures that uh, we've been discussing—have a positive impact on organizational performance. On things like commitment to the work, you know, the commitment of individuals to the organization, um, the you know, desire for good outcomes, improved creativity, and uh, initiative taking and problem solving. Sense of community, um, both perceived and objective measures of organizational performance, Uh, all those things are contribute. The individual piece has some impact, but it seems smaller, whereas in the organizational, whereas the organizational spirituality seems to have a very substantive impact on those things. Meaning, if people perceive their organization as a place where values are are prominent and adhered to uh the value of individuals and and the development of individuals is important where contribution uh, and meaning is consistently reinforced then the the impact on performance is enormous people are more committed to those organizations they they want to see them succeed they want to be a part of them Mm -hmm. uh they want to stick around
1: yeah so there was this one study uh that, that we saw from kolodinsky et al that that saw uh a significant impact on organizational spirituality on things like job involvement Mm -hmm. right the degree to um of active participation in one's job um or the degree to which self-esteem or self-worth is um, derived or affected by one's perceived performance level right so spirituality was or organizational spirituality was Positively related to job involvement, to organizational identification, right—the degree to which we um, derive our own personal identity from our job—with uh, reward satisfaction, and it was negatively associated. Reward
0: satisfaction meaning—are you are you happy with the way in which you get paid or otherwise rewarded with you know whatever incentives are offered yeah. within the organization?
1: Yeah. And it was negatively associated with
0: organizational
1: frustration, right? Which is this um, negative sense of involvement at work, that you're frustrated with whatever you're doing in the workplace. Yeah. so I think
0: might be tied also to concepts like burnout.
1: Yeah. And that study um, found, interestingly, like you said, that personal spirituality was mostly insignificantly related to all these outcome variables, meaning it didn't really make an impact. One way or the right. other.
0: I mean, there was some, but it was a much lower level. Yeah, uh, impact. I think across the board.
1: Yeah. What do we make of this? What's the what what What's the implication of these finding, Do you think?
0: Um, so I, I think people are accustomed to coming into a workplace and having their own sense of values and perceptions, and that that w- wouldn't necessarily shift across organizations. But if they feel they're in an organizational context that that nurtures that or mirrors that matches that. Uh, sense of values and concern, um, then that's the real reinforcement, right? That's where that's what's going to really make them committed to their work and willing to offer their whole selves hmm. uh, or their, you know, their their mind and efforts to uh, to the organization's broader objectives.
1: So that's interesting. So it's the degree, uh, would you say, a degree of the match between the. The person and the organization, in terms of their expect, like spiritual expectations or capacity or willingness to allow um spiritual expression in the workplace.
0: Yeah, that, that's my perception. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it's it's interesting because in in you know in in our field of information systems, we're talking about task technology fit, mm-hmm. right? The degree to which technology fits the task for which it's meant to um within which it's meant to be used. But that's a different kind of fit that we're talking about here. It's the fit between the the, the person and their expectation, and the organization, and its willingness or capacity to um, allow individuals the space to um, express whatever it is that they want to achieve in the workplace. So that that plays a very important role in all these outcome variables that we saw. That's a good. In- I think I, I'm happy with this interpretation. I think it makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, just intuitively, you have this feeling that you know people's involvement. I mean, our work lives are a huge part of our our lives, right? <laughs> like just in pure hours. And so, I think people feeling that their work environment reinforces their broader. Sam Harris would not be comfortable with me saying sense of self, I imagine, but <laughs> uh, but I'll I'll use it anyway. Um, I think the degree to which the work environment reinforces that sense of self, I think, has big implications for their their commitment and their involvement in their work. Did you see any negative outcomes here? So I think as we look across this literature, I see tons of upside, you know, lots of very clear and again, empirically validated benefits that come with organizational spirituality and and mindfulness, but I didn't see any points of critique.
1: You're right. I, I I haven't seen any study that mentioned any negative outcome from spirituality or mindfulness for that matter.
0: Yeah. So um, so lots of upside, no apparent downside. Before we go to our takeaways, I think it m- might be worth just reflecting for a minute on how this relates to, uh, it occurred to me that this topic relates quite strongly with a number of the topics we've covered already. Mm-hmm. Um, ESG, for example, right? So uh, environmental, uh, social, and governance, that this whole idea of organizational spirituality aligns very much with that around this idea that you know of organizations contribute you know doing good or wh- whatever the Kofi Annan um, right uh, phrase was that kicked off the ESG movement but this idea of organizations trying to embrace a sense of meaning and that it has real benefits in terms of the engagement of their employees
1: not just meaning it's also if, if you think about spiritual based on the dimensions we mentioned before so spirituality encompasses interconnectedness and community and to the degree that you have employees within the organization that that actively think and reflect of these notions and what it means not just as, as an individual to be interconnected to other individuals but for an organization to be part of a community and connected to other communities and other organizations not just in your immediate vicinity but beyond one would think it would be positively positively associated with notions of ESG and i wonder if there are studies that look at look at this we haven't i haven't looked for those studies but my intuition is that if you know if you if you looked into this relationship, it would probably be positive.
0: Pretty strong, yeah. I agree. I haven't seen that either, but I, I would expect that to be the case as well. Um, I, I think these topics also relate to our discussion of uh, very early in our uh, series um, managing Gen Z that we have heard consistently, and the research seems to suggest that you know the. The newest generation in the workforce gen z even though we have now questioned their (laughs) ethical reasoning (laughs) um but they seem to um desire meaning in the workplace you know they have very they very clearly expressed that they want their careers to be something where there is a sense of purpose and not just pursuing you know
1: yeah i think that's a good point i haven't i haven't thought about it that way i do wonder so I know mindfulness has become increasingly popular in the West in the last couple of decades, but I wonder what is the degree of uptake of mindfulness and mindful practices amongst younger generations? My sense has always been, and it's not well substantiated, it's just kind of a, you know, based on my own very partial experiences, it's more of an older generation. It's all the older generations that are into mindfulness. Do you have any any intuition about this at all?
0: Um, that's a good, I don't, I don't, I don't. My intuition would be that, uh, younger generations are not very practiced in mindfulness or meditation. Um, I mean, we, that's a good question. Maybe before our next episode, we can do a little digging and see who are the biggest users of Sam Harris's waking up, uh, service. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, my guess is it's going to be middle-aged people. Um, uh, But that's, I don't have good evidence to support that. So that might be one worth looking up. Oh, uh, total aside. I, in one of our previous ones on ethicality, I said, I think women tend to be nicer than men. Yeah. Um, I remember that that. women tend to be more pro-social. I did follow up by looking into the research and I think that's an unfounded, it appears to be an unfounded assumption on my part that it does not appear that overall women are more pro-social than men in the research literature.
1: So we're equally bad in that
0: respect. Jerky.
1: We're, good. we're all jerks. We are all jerks. <laughs> yeah. But going back to the point you made before, I think it's I think it's very interesting, especially given, and I think that's something we've talked about in the in that episode on managing Gen Z as well, um, which is the degree of uh, sensitivity, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, of many members of that generation and their need for safety, and I think. Mm-hmm. You know, exercising this muscle, this mental muscle, is extremely important. To inc- I mean, we talked about the relationship between mindfulness and resilience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody can benefit from having more resilience, but it it strikes me that given the the evidence that we have in front of us in terms of the differences, the intergenerational differences, I think this might be particularly useful for members of Gen Z.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. And for those leading them, managing them
1: yes yeah
0: yeah yeah try i mean practicing it themselves but also trying to uh maybe do again some interventions with uh those in the workforce to say let's do some practices here that might uh, have positive implications for your own mental well-being great so i guess that takes us to our takeaways um what are your takeaways
1: you want to start reflecting on the whole thing as a whole it strikes me that spirituality is, you know, people tend to make this distinction between, um, um, hard and soft management. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes it feels like the the soft aspects of management are kind of disparage because you can't really quantify them or measure them, um, accurately. Mm-hmm. But uh, to me, it's almost like a, a source of un, an untapped source of, of, a whole range of positive impacts on organizations that are extremely tangible and quantifiable. And yeah, uh, it probably would have been more so or more true 10 or 15 years ago, because I do think that more and more organizations engage in, in, um, or you know, actively and consciously try to increase levels of mindfulness or, um, I guess various forms of spirituality amongst their employees. But I, I still think that this is something that that can be enhanced, um, and adopt it on a much broader scale, because, like we said before, it seems like there's almost no negative consequences to doing that, and a lot, a lot of, of positive consequences. So, yeah, I think the way is, is almost, do yeah, it. yeah, yeah, do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, and and on a couple fronts, right. One is recognize that the 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 spiritual presentation or the spiritual climate within your organization matters. And so, you know, taking seriously the values that the organization espouses, not that it's not just marketing material that you're sort of distributing to the world, but that if you take it as, as an important measure of your own organizational climate, you know, are you espousing significant values? Are you giving a sense of meaning and purpose uh, to the workplace? Are you uh, attending to the need for connectedness? Uh, again, one of our earlier topics with uh, remote work that's an interesting question, right? Does a move to remote work undermine some of that sense of connectedness or ability to establish connectedness within organizations get undermined with it? Um, and then also on the leadership side, I think there's there's clear implications that leaders who practice this type of self-reflection and and uh, focus on the present um, have tremendous benefit experience tremendous benefits in in their own
1: performance but also those of their employees. So we are in complete agreement over this.
0: Do it. And now we know that Uri is spiritual. Oh.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. Um, nice. I don't want to be pinned down and, and pigeonholed and be known as anything.
0: Yes, I understand. I understand. All right. Let's do our favorite things. All right, so favorite things, we're going to do favorite
1: city. So it was my idea. Yes. And it was my idea, not because I have an answer to what my favorite city is. I don't know why I picked it. I have a I have an answer, but it's a clever answer in the annoying sense of the word. So why don't you go first, and I'll... I'll...
0: Mine's gonna be boring though because my favorite city is my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio, which I know is actually <laughs> your favorite city as well.
1: <laughs> the mistake by the lake, the armpit of America. Wow, <laughs> why is it really your favorite uh, city?
0: Yeah, but uh, maybe we need to pick a different favorite thing. I don't, I don't know. know because uh, I mean it is my hometown, and I think one has a sense of connectedness to one's hometown.
1: That um, so, were you born there? yeah and you lived there until yeah. what age
0: uh eighteen and then I went away for four years and then I came back I could choose Boston I have lots of friends in Boston I still love to go back to
1: Boston mm-hmm. no, no that's i'm I'm very curious to hear why uh, so it's it's entirely because it's your hometown or is there another objective reason well, no,
0: I don't think it's entirely I, I i I love to go back there I love the the um the social dynamic within the city I think there's a there's a little bit of an underdog feel associated with Cleveland, right? That, and some of it is our sports teams. I'm 50 years old and there's only one championship of any of our teams in that entire time. And there's lots of heartbreak associated Mm -hmm. with it. And even that one championship was only seven years. The Cavs. Sorry. Um, The Cavaliers in 2016. Yeah. Um, and so as a result, I think the town has a little bit of a underdog feel. You'll occasionally see people say things like Cleveland against the world. And, uh, I think, uh, the head coach at Ohio State said Ohio against the world uh, a couple of weeks back. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's a little bit of that bonding around um, the, that, that underdog ethos. Um, I think it also, it much like any city, it has uh, different neighborhoods that have their own distinctive flavor. And I think that's something that I always enjoy when I go home. What's the
1: movie. Um, it's a great movie. And I, I thought that the feel of that movie very accurately captured the spirit of Cleveland because it's kind of an underdog movie about this um um comic artist does that ring him, Bill?
0: Oh, so there was a guy uh Crumb, was his name R Crumb? was he from Cleveland
1: uh, let Let me look it up real quick.
0: I think there was a there was a sort of like a underground comics kind of guy uh, who I believe he was a native Clevelander.
1: Okay, it's called American Splendor. It's about Harvey Picard.
0: Harvey Picard.
1: Okay. I've never seen the movie. That's terrible. Oh, you should definitely watch it. It's it's really good. Uh it's okay. Paul Giamatti. Who is Paul Giamatti fa-
0: plays Harvey Picard?
1: One of my favorite actors. And yeah, it's it's such a classic underdog movie, and it's set in Cleveland because Harvey Picar is from Cleveland. Picard. Dude.
0: Anytime I mispronounce an Israeli name, you make fun of me. So now I get to... I'm pretty sure PCAR is
1: not an American, whatever that means. There's no such
0: thing as a Cleveland name. (laughs) 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 But there's lots of ethnicities, that you know, uh, much like uh, every other city in the Midwest, there was lots of in-migration to the region in the 19th and early 20th century. So we have uh, lots of Slovenians. Actually, it's the largest population of Slovenians outside of Slovenia. Lots of Croatians, lots of Poles, Italians, Irish. So, you know, you, you learn how to pronounce some of the names.
1: At any rate, Apollo Ciamati plays the the classic anti hero um, f- um, role in this movie, which I, I thought profoundly captures the spirit of the city. So, you should definitely check it out if you haven't seen it.
0: I will. I will for sure.
1: So for 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 folks who haven't been there, what's the one thing that you would recommend people to do when they when they go to Cleveland? What's the one thing they should see or experience? Um
0: so I mean there's the things that people tend to go to like the Rock Hall and Fam- Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is actually a great museum. It's I, I love it. Um and and people go to the games. Uh I think if you were to go to the, it's a fun place to watch a baseball game at Progressive Field. Um or a football game at right. the Brown Stadium, um, but uh, again, the things I, I one of the things I love about the city is the various neighborhoods. So, you know, there's and and a lot of them have really there's there's actually a really nice uh, culinary scene. So in Ohio City, which is just over the river on the west side of town,
1: Tremont is that that area?
0: Oh, Tremont is I, actually you're right. Tremont has gotten his has the big one because that's where Michael Simon opened up a number of his big restaurants uh when he was first rising to fame um so Tremont uh you and I have definitely had a beer in Tremont before back in the day probably University Circle where we spend a lot of our time and Little Italy which is just up the hill from University Circle yeah is a great place to spend an afternoon have a coffee sit and people watch
1: yeah uh, um, that, that... that has
0: really been redeveloped since we were in school by the way has it Little Italy yeah well uh no university circle oh yeah yeah i've
1: heard this. i've heard yeah because when you and i were there it was uh, a pretty um dodgy area you wouldn't want to hang around there after dark
0: <laughs> yeah that's not true anymore yeah that's good yeah
1: okay uh, well, can i can i just say one of my um i don't know if like strongest memories from from having lived in cleveland is um the west 6 area
0: yeah, so there's still lots of good entertainment areas. So Wessex is still cool. The flats has been complete. So the flats is down along the Cuyahoga River, and that when I was a young man was a big entertainment district. um, and it's been and then it fell out of favor. And now it's been redeveloped, and it's really sort of jumping
1: and is the population picking up, you start right?
0: I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, it is much like any other Rust Belt city. it it was at uh, one I just read a book. Uh, that's an interesting book, by the way, called American Demon. If you've ever read Devil in the White City, it's very like Devil in the White City, but it's in Cleveland. Um, and it deals with a very famous uh, series of serial martyrs in in the 1930s in Cleveland. But at that time, Cleveland was like, I think, the eighth largest city in the country or seventh largest city in the country. And much like the rest of the Rust Belt, it, it declined dramatically. Uh, but I haven't looked at the population numbers in the last uh, 20 years.
1: Well, that's good to hear that um, the place is picking up because when I was there, yeah, some some patches or areas of the city were like a, pretty desolate. So I remember, you know, the drive from downtown back towards University um, uh, uh, Cleveland Heights or the University area, there was um, a whole stretch of boarded up houses that that was just like a there was nothing there. It was kind of depressing to to drive past. That stretch
0: that. is still a little rough. Is it? Yeah, around Cleveland Clinic, which. Well, even
1: before even closer to the to the downtown well around
0: cleveland clinic it's been very what you would call gentrified so that actually that has been brightened up a little bit but uh but it's still a pretty rough stretch from the city to university circle
1: yeah um by the way um speaking of cleveland um have you, have you watched that show little fires everywhere
0: um so it's based in shaker right yes i think i watched an episode or two and i have to go back and and watch more, but it is based in Shaker Heights, which is a inner-ring suburb of the city of Cleveland. It's a very good which show. Every day, when I meet people who know who have family or friends from the area, it's always Shaker. Is it's always right? Shaker where people are from. It's kind of wild. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, well that's good. So my my favorite city, and I have to say that uh, when I said before that my answer was going to be clever in the annoying sense of the word. I, I think it's uh I would I would pick London but I I, I pick London just because I have a I, I've, I experienced London at a certain point in time so it was my favorite city um in the years 2000 2001 when I when I li- when I lived there um it probably wouldn't be my favorite city today
0: but you were at LSE
1: yeah I was uh, I was a student at LSE uh for a period of time and I had just left Israel for the first time, so it was my first experience living overseas and kind of getting exposed to different cultures and people from different places. And it was a real I'm eye-opener. reading
0: between the lines here. I'm reading between the lines to be this is where you sowed your wild oats and that's why that's why uh, London is your favorite city. <laughs>
1: no, well, no, it it was uh, it was life changing in in some very meaningful ways. So you've never lived outside of the us. So you're still a virgin that way. I guess. <laughs> but it's really revealing. I'm not going really to offer any commentary. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, as is often the case with Israel, it was a, a, a politically tumultuous time back then. And um, so I was exposed to views of Israel being expressed by people outside of Israel. Um, mm-hmm. And that was it was revealing because it was just something that I hadn't experienced before, and and to hear other people talk so passionately, and not necessarily positively, about your home country is is confronting. Um, but it, it is an eye opening experience, and um, you know, I I don't know if anybody, if many people know um, the LSE, but um, it, it's a school in London where they this have- is the London School of Economics and political science or sciences i never know but yes and so you get students from all over the world so in many ways my my program there was like kind of like a summer school where i got to hang out with people around my age from various countries all over europe and beyond and it, it was like really fun i still have good friends that i met there and um and i got to experience the city through this lens of being a student in this you know, prestigious university and, and, and hanging out with people from different countries and it was all new and exciting and, um, yeah, it was great.
0: Yeah. Cool. I will say this though, just as a caveat on your earlier comment about my virginity. Um, (laughs) I, while I have not lived for an extended time outside the United States, I've spent enough time outside the United States and have enough friends and collaborators who are not us-based that I've heard plenty of critiques of my own (laughs) country by, by others, present company not excluded (laughs) (laughs) accepted
1: no i'm not i'm not one to shy away from expressing my views especially with my friends that's why i love you okay oh all right we're there we're there oh come on expressions of love i love you too sean we're we're
0: old friends there's nothing wrong with that yeah (laughs) okay uh well good discussion Ori. i think we could probably wrap it up for tonight
1: we'll talk again soon